0: One of my Berkeley profs, one of my favorite things that has stayed with me from my time there, he said, you know, Nick, a bad day playing music is still better than a good day doing just about anything else.
1: Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound, so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Nick Morrison. My next guest is an Amazon number one best-selling author, professional musician, composer, teacher, voice actor, YouTube creator, actor, and music media consultant from Calgary, Alberta. He has toured through the United States, Canada, and Japan as a guitarist, worked as a session musician, and writer-composer for Warner Brothers, Universal Studios, Sony, MTV, ABC, NBC, HGTV, and HBO, among others. He was educated at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, where he studied guitar performance and music business management. In 2021, he began writing guitar instructional books and will continue to bring his love of the instrument to as many people around the world as possible. His name is Nick Morrison, and our discussion runs the gamut from music to sound design to audio branding and everything in between. Stay tuned for a wild ride. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com, where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And now, here's my interview with Nick Morrison. Hey, Nick. Thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here.
1: So I usually start off all of my interviews with the same question. And the reason I do this is because I love the stories that it brings out from people. So I want to ask, do you have an early memory of how sound moved you? Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> See, that's a story waiting yeah, to happen. Yeah, <laughs> well, you
0: know. So when I was, I remember there's there's two stories. One that I'll truncate, and and another that I'll I'll really kind of give you when it, you know, when I knew that I was going to be a sound professional of some description. I didn't really know the term at the time, but that's what I knew I was going to do. Sure. My mom and my family is a very musical family. And my mom would, before the craze of the whole Mozart for minors or Mozart for babies or whatever that whole thing was, she would sit and put speakers as close as she could to her belly to like play music for me and sing with me. So like I've had musical experiences um, in utero and I'm not going to be so weird as to say like I remember floating in the womb and listening to music but it's always been a huge part of my life. Yeah, (laughs) but it's always been a huge part of my life. And as long as I could remember singing and dancing with my mom, no matter what was going on, good, bad and different feelings of joy, you know, and of course now at 42, I'm like, I'm going back. It's like, it's very nostalgic. And of course you only see with rose colored glasses, but, Everything was, it, it's only good memories. It's warm memories. It's fond memories. It's happy stuff. And that is kind of my earliest exposure. And, and it actually, my, my fa- her favorite from that time and my favorite, one of my favorites still even today, is a Canadian artist. He's a folk artist named Valdi who is from Ottawa. Now he lives out in Vancouver Island, but, uh, specifically the, uh, Voldy and the hometown band record. And it's really cool since moving to Canada. And I lived in Vancouver for a little a to- little while as well. I've actually met and worked with a lot of those people that were on that record, which is really cool. Um, you know, not in any huge capacity, like I've produced a record with them or whatever, but you know, jam nights and sure. um, different projects and, um, things like that. And it's, it's been cool to be able to, uh, to, to meet, you know some of my heroes that i didn't even really know were my heroes
1: sure
0: um but i bring that up because those early experiences and the way that he sings on those records and the way that those records were put together and the style of music it is still influencing me now 40 odd 41 42 years later with my own writing my own style my own sense of melody which i think is really cool i'm sorry that was the truncated version quote unquote maybe maybe the other story is shorter so i remember when i got my first nintendo Oh yes. Okay. 1986, 85. I don't remember when they came out, but Mm -hmm. in the eighties. And of course, at that time it came with the, the, the master controller. You'd have one controller and you had the, the duck hunt gun, and then you had one game cartridge, which was Mario brothers and duck hunt. So you could choose which one you wanted. Sure. And I became obsessed with Mario brothers and the music in each level, and I was fascinated with how different the music would be level to level, and how when you would run a time, suddenly the music would play faster, huh. and um, just the the different. And I didn't even at that time I didn't I wasn't good at video games, and I couldn't really play it. But my entire goal of playing the game was to hear all the different music. Yeah, throughout the game, and it was at that point that I really decided I was like, I'm gonna do something with music. Maybe maybe I'm gonna write music for video games or something or I don't know, movies. I, again, I don't. I didn't have the vocabulary then to know specifically what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to get into sound. And, uh, and it's funny, cause I remember, I think my aunt had like a little Casio keyboard, maybe like a 42 keyboard, like, you know, the ones that like took 87 D cell batteries. <laughs> yeah. So it was really heavy, mm-hmm. um, but she gave it to me and it had like this pre-programmed, like drum loops and sort of grooves. Like oh, there was yeah. a mamba and a samba yeah, and a bossa nova. Those. And it had the auto chord feature. So that you could play one key, and it would play um, arpeggiated chords or um, one-shot chords. And I remember sitting with this thing, and planning out my own version of Mario Brothers. And I like I I had a journal with like little boxes of what the levels looked like, and then I would write down all of the information on how I would play on the keyboard to make the music happen for those levels
1: sure it's the original dynamic music i mean yeah you know that's that's a a portion of audio branding right there (laughs) Mm -hmm. definitely absolutely yeah well yeah i can definitely see where the whole musical thing is coming from (laughs) yeah uh so what got you interested in the guitar because i know that you started playing that
0: yeah i mean i had i had started playing violin uh when i was very young i think i was about three or four So I started with the Suzuki method, and uh, I I I loved music and I loved the violin. I loved the way it sounded, but I hated practicing.
1: Oh, I and it was a fight. I
0: remember (laughs) with my mom yelling at me, "Go pick up your violin. Go practice. Go!" And I played from the time I was you know three or four until I was about eight, Mm -hmm. when it just it became so much of a fight that my mom just kind of was like, "Listen, you either want to do this or you don't." And you're old enough now to choose. And I said, yeah, I I, I don't want to do it anymore. And then at nine or 10, I took a piano for a little while, but it was the same kind of thing. I hated practicing. And my teacher at the time, I remember, basically I went in and I was like, hey, check out these cool things. And I was writing my own music at this point. Sure. And uh, she basically yelled at me saying, you can't do that. You're not learning your lessons. You're wasting your mother. You're wasting your parents and my time and money. And I said, okay. So I, cl- I got up, I closed my books, and I walked out of the room, and that was the end of my piano lessons. Oh,
1: my goodness. Well, that's um, not a way to encourage you.
0: <laughs> no, totally not. So I didn't, I didn't really play anything for, for a couple of years until I was about 12, and um, I heard Metallica enter Sandman on the radio. Oh yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I want to learn to do that. And my mom had an old acoustic sitting in a in a closet and I asked her if I could play it and it was horribly out of tune and just whatever. So, I remember borrowing a how uh, Leonard or maybe a Mel Bay basic guitar level one book and trying to work through it and learn how to like tune a guitar and just do whatever and it just from those first notes and I subsequently didn't learn to play Leonard Sandman until probably two or three years later but you know I was able to, to pluck stuff out and um, and it just I fell in love with it at 12 and it, it's been a lifelong g- obsession ever since
1: that's great yeah <laughs> I can see how it would how the effort would make it um, something that you would be proud of being able to do.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a there's a it's not a steep learning curve. And I don't know, we're, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent about the guitar, but um, there's not really a, a steep learning curve to how the guitar works in terms of as an instrument. It's actually pretty simple. It's like string, put your finger here, it makes a higher note. Move your finger higher, it makes a higher note. Like great. Yeah. But there's a major learning curve to the physicality of it. Um, developing calluses on your fingers, learning how much pressure to apply, being able to move deftly between chords uh, and then soloing and, and, you know, individually individual melody work and these sorts of things. It, it takes a long time to, vo- to develop that facility. Whereas, and I'm gonna take a shot at piano players here, but I mean, a cat can jump on a piano and it sounds good. <laughs>
1: you know? This is true. Right. Yeah, like a C yeah. chord
0: will always sound in as long as your piano Coming is Coming from tuned, a piano
1: player. Well, right? <laughs> once a piano player. And I yeah. love <laughs> the piano now. And of
0: course, I've, I've, I've sort of self-taught myself. And then through school, I had to learn for like ear training and arrangement class and stuff like that. I would never play in front of people. But, you know, I know it well enough that I can plunk stuff out.
1: I'm the same way.
0: <laughs> and I love the piano. It's My, my grandmother was a, was a concert pianist for a time. And uh, I remember sitting, you know, listening to her play and practice under underneath. I would sit like kind of by the soundboard right by her feet. And um, so, I mean, I love the piano, but again, like a C chord is always a C chord. There's Mm -hmm. no sharper flat. There's no bending it out of tune. Whereas with guitar that can happen really easy. And especially with beginners, they tend to uh, try and squeeze the crap out of their necks. (laughs) And it's like, you don't need to do that.
1: I know we're all dealing with a lot these days, so I really wanted to acknowledge those that have gone out of their way to leave an honest review of this podcast. Like Edith, who writes, Excellent job. I will recommend this podcast to my friend who is now working on their company branding. I believe that sound plays a great role in their company's brand, and I'm sure she will like this recommendation. Excellent job, Jody. Thanks so much, Edith. I'm so glad you and your friend find the podcast useful. I really appreciate your comments. And for those of you that are interested, you can also leave a voice review now off of the main podcast page. It's super simple, and I'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. So when you're teaching people, because I know you, you have a, a course on teaching guitar.
0: Yes, so when
1: Yeah, several, exactly. So, so when you teach people, um, you've said that you want it to be um, less stressful and more fun. Yeah. So can you explain what your point is there? (laughs) Totally.
0: So I, um, I've been doing this a long time. I've been, I've been teaching since I was 16 because I, I did, I developed that facility fairly quickly and then I got good enough at it that I could teach my friends. Now, I mean, at 16, can you really say, yeah, I was a professional teacher. No, not really. But I start, (laughs) you know, you start cutting your teeth and learning how to work with people and how to get ideas across and, and, and really start to develop that one-to-one kind of, um, personality or or specialty if you will and I've spent a lot of years teaching sort of beginners intermediates and then sort of advanced and then of course as you go through school and you know so on and so forth you end up getting uh, teaching like college prep stuff and whatever else what I've found now at this particular point in my life is that I'm not so much interested in teaching kids I'm not I, and I don't teach even adult beginners I'm not really interested in doing that not that that isn't a worthwhile thing and I encourage everybody to pick up the guitar but specifically I want to or what i aim to do is work with guys around my age or, or gals or people i should say people around my age <laughs> sure. that have had life happen to them you know you, you get married or you have a kid on purpose or by accident uh you know you, you get a mortgage you get a job you work on building your career you let go a lot of the loves that you had in your youth you know even up into your, your mid-20s And then something happens around 40, at least for guys, I think women are probably the same, like, you know, people are people and something happens where you, right, maybe, (laughs) maybe a little older, right. But something happens where we kind of go, you know, there's more to life than clocking in for my nine to five and waiting for Saturday and going to play pool with my buddies or bowling or whatever it happens to be. And for a lot of us, it's music. And for a lot of guys, especially my age, because again, you know, the, the late 80s and early 90s was a very, very, very fruitful time in the music business. You know, you've got Nirvana, you've got Soundgarden, you've got Metallica, you've got um, ACDC, of course, been plunking along for 25 years at that point. But it was there was a lot of stuff happening. And it seems that a lot of guys my age played guitar either in a band or even just in their bedroom or whatever and now that they've got a little bit of money then a little bit more time they want to get back into it so my goal is to work with intermediate players and to your point my mission statement is to make music fun again and I find a lot of teachers looking back at my early years it's like you have to do it this way you have to sit in this position you have to read this scale and memorize this series of notes and play it exactly as I say with the with the metronome and da-da-da. There's a time and a place for that. I get it. You know, I've been through that system. I've done that system, and, and it's not a lot of fun. Well,
1: you have to learn the rules before you know how to break them, right? Right.
0: But so what I focus on is like, okay, look, you know, you're – you, let's just say 40 you're 40 you don't have a ton of time maybe you got 15 minutes a day between the kids getting up and go to school and you know you leaving to work or your wife saying hey don't forget to take out the garbage or hey don't forget you were going to go get the oil change on the car you've got about 15 minutes to yourself so how can I enable what can I give to those students that in that 15 minutes they can get the most out of the time that they they have with their instrument as possible which is again a series of um either exercise simple exercises that are taken directly out of songs so it's like here's the exercise and what you're gonna learn but this is where you where it comes from so you can go and play ACDC's back in black or you can play come as you are by Nirvana right Um, because by and large most music is repetitious just by its very nature right we like hearing the things that we like to hear so there's a lot of crossover if you learn there's you know blues for example there's about 12 different forms if you learn all those twelve forms, you can basically play any blues with anybody in the North American sort of Western milieu of music. Same goes for rock or for pop or whatever. There's there's kind of a standard repertoire. Once you get it under your fingers, the only difference are those little technical things that sometimes either are difficult to hear or difficult to get under your fingers. So again, I just I focus on that stuff and making making it fun. Um, and I have a whole, obviously, as as, as I mentioned, a, a course and uh, books. And my Facebook group, which is a private group just for members of the, we call it the Guitar Dojo. And, uh, and we, we have, it's not even contest because music shouldn't be a competition, but we do monthly uh, collaborations. So either myself or I have a couple of people that, that work with me uh, on the project and we'll produce a track and we put it out to the, to the general populace and say, jam over it. Put on your solo or put on your chord thing or put a funky thing on it, whatever. And everybody shoots their little video and records their bit. And at the end of the month, we compile it all together and out goes the video. And it's just a fun way to have fun, right? It, they call it playing music, not working music.
1: Yeah, right? that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: And especially now, you know, with COVID and everything and and other restrictions and things that are coming. Um the internet and the ability, like we're, what we're doing right now, is better than it's ever been before to be able to do stuff like that. Um, and especially for people, maybe in remote communities, or you know, people with uh, mobility issues, or maybe even social anxieties that don't like to get out of the house or whatever. Because we have a few of every of those in my group. Sure. The online thing is is non. Um, it's much easier, you know, and it gives them a chance to have some expression. So it's a good thing. It's fun.
1: Yeah. Well, I love that you're doing that. It sounds like a lot of fun for people who want to be doing this. And yeah, and, totally. Yeah. I agree about the internet never having been better because yeah, yeah if, I think if we had had this whole lockdown thing years and years and years ago, we would have been in much worse of a situation. Oh, I, totally. mean, I, I mean, not that this is a good situation to be in, but certainly having the technology that we have now that's able to keep us connected in a way, even if we're completely different in different places
0: yeah countries uh, time zones yeah so on and so forth yeah it makes the world a
1: smaller place (laughs) yeah
0: yeah if if there is a silver lining to be found that's 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 the one is thank goodness it was 2020 not 1980 yes
1: yeah or
0: heck even 2002 oh my goodness yeah Yeah.
1: i got my first computer in 86 (laughs) okay (laughs) so nice
0: I yeah. wasn't far behind you. I think it was uh, maybe eighty nine because mm-hmm. it was yeah it was yeah it was eighty nine, and uh, it was a it was an eighty three eighty six. Mm-hmm. So the old the old DOS processor and Is that the uh, XT. And, um, no, I don't think so.
1: Or two eighty six.
0: No, it was the three eighty six. So it okay, was like the 386. 286 was okay. the first one. Yeah, it was so the next
1: one up. When the three eighty six SX was new, I was yeah. selling computers. Nice. <laughs> The turbocharged 386, which those of us back in the day. Oh, the turbo button, which
0: actually did the opposite of what it said.
1: (laughs) Uh, Little did we know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, never good. Um, Yeah, but I didn't last very long in that. Um, Although computers has remained a, a love of my life. From that moment that I saw one in '86, so <laughs>
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's really transformed everything that we've do as humans now. Um, I can't think of a single industry that doesn't have at least some computer automation, or computer modeling, or computer monitoring, or computer computer connectivity to keep us in touch and to help us with our jobs and and, and so on and so forth. And I mean, if you totally. look at Again, what we're doing right now, podcasting, music yeah. creation, sound engineering, um, all of it, is, it, it's made everything so much faster and cheaper, which, of course, there's good and bad to all of that. But
1: There is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that is a very good segue, actually, mm. into your composition work. <laughs> totally. So uh, I'm curious how much you use a computer for your composition work rather than just the recording. Do you do, like, when you're making an entire piece, are you using a lot of computer sampling or are you actually recording different pieces and and putting them all together.
0: Yeah. So when I, when I'm wearing my composition hat for film and TV, I have um, my, my brand when I think about my brand and what it is that I do, if you want to bring this back to like a sound branding idea, and I can give you the words. So the way that I pitch this is evocative rock for media. And that often includes more than just guitar, bass, drums. It's often keys, synths, orchestra, that kind of thing. And when I'm composing, depends of course on the job, but usually it starts with a melody either in my head or something that I've got on the guitar or possibly a groove that I develop again on the guitar or maybe even just kind of drumming on my chest or something. Then it's a matter of recording scratch tracks. And usually what I'll do is I'll program just literally using my keyboard um, and the, the, the MIDI roll on Logic and I'll program a, a very rudimentary basic, you know, three, four, 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 six, eight, whatever I happen to be doing, just a basic groove so that I can record my, my guitar as a, a scratch track so that I kind of know where I'm going or if it's a piano led thing or whatever it happens to be. Then I'll actually go in and I've got a MIDI kit, I don't have it set up in my, in my studio at the moment, but um, I've got a MIDI kit, then I'll actually go through and record quote unquote live drums, but I'm actually using that MIDI kit to trigger samples um, then I'll go and record bass and that I do analog guitar. I do analog, um, piano or synth or strings or whatever will then get later on top. And again, those are all samples, um, triggered by the, the MIDI keyboard. So it's kind of funny cause it's, it, it is analog in terms of input, but you know, digital in terms of, um, generation and, and, and final outcome. And then again, depending on the usage, um, will really dictate how much I quantize things. So if they, if the client is really looking for a rock punk garage band kind of sound, I usually don't do very much quantization at all because it, it has to have kind of a live swinging feel, make it sound like there's an actual, there are actual people in a room playing together. Whereas if, if I'm doing a, you know, a placement for like a reality TV thing, which is a bit more sort of keyboard strings, synthy type sounds, that stuff is usually just very quantized, very bang, bang, bang. Not really computerized, but it's almost computerized.
1: So if we're um, starting from the beginning of all of this composition, you're contacted by someone who needs a composition, you make the composition, you let them use it. What are the terms usually that they ask for or that you give them? And how, how do you actually go about selling these pieces of music?
0: Okay, that's a large multi-part question. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yes. The the idea of this is I'm trying to help other musicians understand how this works.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, of course, the, the short answer is it depends. But by and large, there are sort of two, there are two paths that you can go by to quote Led Zeppelin. Um, one of which is an upfront payment. Actually, there's several more paths than this, but we'll just keep it really simple at this for now. Mm -hmm. One is a pay for uh, use or a um, contract for hire. So the client contacts you directly and says, I would like a piece of music that does this, this, this and this. It needs to be this long and I'm going to pay you this much money or I have a budget of X number of dollars. What do you think? And then you pitch them an, an, an idea. And then usually those with a work for hire contract, you are... Signing your life away, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word, yeah. Where you get x amount of dollars up front, you know, maybe thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, three thousand dollars. Again, every contract's a little bit different because it depends on the size of the client and what they're using it for. So that's a, a work for hire deal. The other one, and and of course you sign you sign those rights, and it's usually worldwide universal. Um, for until the end of time. And you just, this is it, I've created it for you, it's yours, you do whatever you like with it. And very often with those, you never see or hear them again, unless you're lucky and you happen to be tuned to a radio station or a TV something and you go, oh, I did that, um, because they don't tell you about the final use. The other way is what I'll say is probably the, well, it has the potential to be more lucrative. And I think what I've done the most of, which is um, licensing. So often you will and again, you're either going to be approached directly or you create music and then you have it available in some sort of repository somewhere, whether it's a music library um, or an art agency or even your own website and clients come and they surf through and they go, "Ooh, I like that piece of music. I'll have that, please. And then they either pay no fee upfront or a very small fee, like a placement fee, usually 200 to a thousand dollars. Sometimes more, sometimes less, or, or, or zero, but what they do is they put it in their television show or their radio ad or their movie. And every time that show airs or every time that movie is shown or every time the ad goes on the radio, you get a percentage, you get a royalty that is paid to you. Um, now it doesn't come directly to your bank account. It actually is paid to the performing rights organization. So in the US they have BMI and ASCAP and in Canada we have SOCAN. Yeah. And then there are a bunch of others all around the world. So depending on the size of your library and where their clients are located, you could be looking at anywhere from a three to four month delay to get paid to as high as two years. Because you have to wait for the foreign country to report to sometimes America. Again, it depends where the production is. So let's just go this way with the longest foreign country reports usage to America, America sits reports bi yearly, uh, and then they report and this is to Canada. They report to SOCAN and then SOCAN pays out quarterly. So it can be a very, very long time. But if you're lucky and you get a placement and, you know, I was not in the game at this time, but let's take a show like Friends, for example. It's been put into 110 different countries and it's been in syndication for 20 years now you could make a piece of music for a show like that and you'd still be making money today even though you did the work in 1994 oh yeah you know and it would be substantial because it's it's huge and again mm-hmm. that's the goal is to get your music into a show at least for me anyways to get my music into a show that hits syndication because then it's like all right cool i'm laughing oh and yeah making.
1: you can just sit back
0: <laughs> and i mean it's not it dep- again depending on the show it's not necessarily humongous money because if you've got like a title credit so like the guys that wrote um the theme for friends, of course, I'll be there for you. That's a much different sized royalty than the small um, interstitial music between mm-hmm. when Ross opens the door to cafe and closed the door, you know, yeah. so time and so on and so forth. But that's the idea, basically, those are the two ways that, uh, that I get paid.
1: Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Wanna know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up though, you also get access to a resources section called the studio where I have videos, white papers, and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while, totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now back to the podcast. What do you think about uh, people making a living from writing compositions for advertising and film and that kind of thing, as opposed to going out on the road? I mean, do you consider that selling out or like what's the what's the what's the difference in this and, and how do you think musicians should look at this?
0: Well, so one of my one of my Berkeley profs, one of my favorite things that has stayed with me from my time there, he said, you know, Nick, a bad day playing music is still better than a good day doing just about anything else.
1: <laughs> That's a good point.
0: <laughs> so to me, I've always looked at it like I'd rather be playing guitar, writing music, talking about guitar, teaching guitar, composing music, working, you know, in a, in a film booth, sound editing, doing like, you know, something to do with music and sound. And, and the, the thing that I love, I'd rather be doing that than shoveling snow or, you know, building railway tracks or whatever, working in a dentist's office like whatever nothing against any of those professions because they're all super needed and they're all valuable but for me I'd rather play music mm-hmm. and so whether I'm on the road because I, I did that in the in the late 90s and early 2000s um, and I was very lucky I had a lot of fun met a lot of great people made a ton of money um, so I had that life but there comes a point where it's like okay well you know do I want to stay on the road anymore because let's face it less than one percent ever really truly make it as an artist, to be them yeah. own, their own self, to write their own music and to really play it for the masses as themselves. And that's um, a hard life to live. It is. Being on the road is is, is difficult. It's long. It, it's long hours. It's lonely. It's a lot of Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, you see the stories all over the all over the place in terms of, you know, people turn into drink or to drugs or to whatever to get you through the night kind of thing. Um, and that's a very seductive lifestyle to a young 16, 17, 18 year old male. You know, at least of my generation, it was like, I want to be a rock star. <laughs> right? cool. Let's go. You know, you yeah. see videos of Motley Crue and you're like, I want to be those guys. And then you read, of course, their autobiography 30 years later and go, whoa, man, am I glad I'm not one of those guys. Um, but yeah, I always looked at it like I'd rather be making music than having to do something else. And I've got friends that are, you know, in the touring support scene still. Um, and, and this sort of varies by level, of course, depends on the tour they're on and how much money they're making. But, you know, you get the low level guys that basically are still touring around doing saloons, taverns, bars, and maybe, you know, 800, to thousand feet seat theaters. And those guys will tell you, you know, ah, you know, my back hurts and this is not a lot of fun and whatever else. And then you get the guys that are, you know, maybe a little higher tier that are playing bigger venues and it's, and it's still fun, but they still say the same thing. Like, man, I'm, I'm really tired. And then you get the armchair warriors and the gatekeepers of the internet that will say kind of something like where where you've said, it's like, oh, well, if you just, you know, write for to film, you're just writing for the man. You're just making commercial music just to make money. It's <laughs> not about the art. And I'm like, you know, to that, I usually say, okay, well, if it's not about art, I'd like to see you write something for this TV show. Here's the brief. Please go do it. And create it in less than 12 hours because they need it tomorrow morning.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is is art. art. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To do it skillfully, carefully
0: and, you know, deliver something on time that they're actually asking for. Not what you want. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I get it. You give up a little of that creative control when you're when you're creating for other people. But it's still me. My rockestra, my evocative rock for media sounds vastly different than John Smith's rock band for media or, you know, uh, Josie Sullivan's piano jazz for cool ambient times like you get my idea yeah that yeah. is my fingerprint on when I hear my stuff on the radio or on a TV show or in a movie I'm like that's me I did that you know and that's very rewarding
1: oh yeah. yeah and along those lines um question for you about uh these particular um film TV pieces of music do you have one that is your favorite that you really really like that you wish you had written <laughs>
0: uh, um well I think I think we all do in some way, form oh, or another, yeah. <laughs> like when you, you know, when you look back and go, um, this is what got me into film scoring, or this is what got me into writing in a band or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I'm probably going to show my colors because, again, I'm a, I'm a huge Metallica fan, but I really, 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 really wish I would have written Ecstasy and Gold by Enrico Morricone or Ennio mm-hmm. Morricone, excuse me, um, the the famous uh, Italian Western music composer. They, it was the theme from the good, bad, bad, and the ugly. And of yes. course Metallica now owns the rights to that because they use it so often. So really okay. yeah, they purchased the rights, I think in 2013 or 2014 for, I don't know, something stupid 15, $20 million, whatever, but they were tired exactly. of paying royalties for it every time they used yeah. it for every single one of their shows. And of course I'm probably misquoting numbers. I don't have inside information on that. Um, but you know, so they purchased it, it's theirs now and they can use it as they choose. Um, but I love that and actually in so much as um, when I was writing a trailer, um, I don't know if, it, if it's in my bio or not, but I used to co-own a, a video game studio and I was the head of sound for, for that company and um, I composed a bunch of music for the game and one of the trailers we did, I very specifically not so casually completely ripped off um, (laughs) the ecstasy in gold (laughs) because I was just, I love it so much. It's just Uh very, very epic sounding. But yeah, that's, that's a piece that I wish. I mean, of course, the easy answer would be like also anything by John Williams, but um, well, of course, but yeah, the, the, the
1: movies of our times, right? Right. Yeah, totally.
0: (laughs) Back to the future is another great one. Oh, it is. The the main theme. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park always got me. Oh, yes. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, another, n- like, another John Williams.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Back to the future, of course, Alan Silvestri. But, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, these are amazing. Um, and along those lines, out of curiosity, is yeah. there a particular song associated with a brand that you like a lot? And I know that we can sort of get into the discussion of re performed famous songs. Mm. So, Because I know that a lot of brands will um, pay for a song itself, but not that actual performance.
0: Correct. Yeah. I don't do a lot of this anymore. Um, What you would call like a a replacement recording or a replacement track. When I first started out, I took a couple gigs where I did that and basically recreated. um, I'm completely blanking now on what it was, but it was a relatively famous song. And they didn't want to pay full mechanical use royalties for the original artist. So instead, they paid um, uh, writer's royalties for the the music itself and then paid me a small uh, mechanical royalty for my recording of the song. And it works out really, really well for um, shows like that, for a way to sort of, you know, save on budget if it's not something so important that they need the headline artist to actually appear. Um, and then, of course, that brings up. So the easy answer to your question is, Probably my favorite song for a brand is uh, Cadillac with using Led Zeppelin rock and roll. Okay. Which is, you know, hysterical going back to my comment earlier. Now I'm going to be an internet gatekeeper and go, man, talk about selling out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, how are you going to turn down $50 million, right? Oh, you're not. Of course not. No. but, of course, that that's a very different circumstance, right, where that band specifically said 30, 40 years ago, like, our music will never be used to sell products, and we're never going to do whatever. But times change. People change, right?
1: And, yeah, people change, and people get older, and people Absolutely. don't want to be on the road every 24-7, and Absolutely. they want a way to make a living and yeah. keep themselves in the way to which right. they have become accustomed. <laughs>
0: But that's probably one of my favorite songs used with a brand Um, again, just because I'm a huge uh, Led Zeppelin fan and it was a great I think it was a perfect pairing of target market and the audio that would speak their interest because it's instantaneously music has this power to transport the listener back to the time in their life when they first heard it. So if you're selling a sporty Cadillac, which they were your target audience at that time is probably 50 to 60 year old men. And how are you gonna pique their interest? You're gonna play them some Led Zeppelin rock and roll and they're gonna feel like a kid and go, "Ah, instantly join to that brand." Oh yeah, you know, and so it's a perfect placement on so many uh, levels in terms of what it is, what it does and how it works. So I enjoy it on an auditory level of it's a great song. I enjoy it on a professional level. I enjoy it with my like producer's hat going on going, "This was really smart. One other one I'll bring up really quick, and it's not even mm-hmm. a song, but it's more of a sound. Sure. Because I know we talk about, you know, your podcast more. I'm
1: going to get there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll, maybe
0: I'll <laughs> wait then because I have a, another one that's just a sound that I love.
1: This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time.